Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. beginning with the AWA report, that's the American Workforce Association report, uh, with Dan Loa. Greetings and welcome, Dan. How are you? I'm good, Hercules. How are you? I am phenomenal. A lot of uh, things going on, both expected and unexpected, and uh, you and I need to have another meeting sometime soon. Oh, nice. Glad to hear that. Yeah, we definitely do. It's been uh, quite a summer. Yes, it has been, and I see you've been busy writing. Yes, yes, I have been busy in that respect, actually, a little more um, than in pure AWA uh, terms. You know, covering the intro, it's really interesting, actually, covering the nuances of the uh, cannabis industry as it goes legal, and it's really interesting yeah. because, you know, you think it's this this unique industry, but it's very similar to some of the issues we've seen elsewhere, actually, where the workers have been exploited in the past, you know, working in this industry. And it's something that people highly value now when trying to legalize it is uh, creating, you know, proper uh, good working conditions, for example. So it's really interesting watching also a lot of like small companies try to compete against some of these larger companies that have the advantages that larger companies often have, including the ability to hire and um, use, you know, lobbyists who are, like, really connected to the government, and you're able to win government contracts that way and other special favors. So it's been very illuminating in that sense. As well. That is very illuminating. So even though the uh, industry is controversial, its modus operandi is uh, uh, is fairly uh, standard and at a high level. That's very interesting. 
Yeah, you know, like it is like a certain way, like people who have, you know, careers, you know, doing other things in business, you know, or just see this as another business and another business to exploit. So it's interesting that way, you know, but there's always hope for the future. So we'll see what happens in that respect as the industry matures and hopefully becomes legal fully here in New Jersey. You know, it's one of the, an area where we've been dragging uh, our previous governor hated it. You know, a new governor who was interested in labor reform is also interested in cannabis reform. So we're waiting on that and we're hoping that a deal can be made by the end of the year. That is incredibly awesome. I know that uh, laws have been changing uh, and a lot more compassion is being shown to people who are uh, addicted uh, and affected by uh, substances. Uh, and yeah. that the law is yeah. becoming much more forgiving and uh, more geared towards uh, rehabilitation and healing uh, than locking people up. And that's a very positive thing to see as well. Yeah, so that is the idea that a lot of the people that were, like, pinched, you know, for buying, like, small amounts of cannabis and had to deal with, like, enormously terrible consequences are going to be free of some of, like, this ridiculous, like, points in the law. One of the funny things about the law and cannabis is that the government currently treats opiates and heroin, they don't think that's as bad as, uh, and as negative as cannabis is, you know, they think cannabis is cannabis is officially a Schedule One narcotic, so that has like no medical use. Versus heroin has medical use. These doctors give up basically heroin with these opiate pills, painkillers to people, and people become addicted. Versus cannabis, which you know you can't, you know, people can argue that you're addicted, but it certainly doesn't have the horrible effects of withdrawal that you know people see in. Like in heroin, where in like movies, you know, there's one movie most famously called Train Spotting, where guys like hallucinating a baby, you know, mm. and like the, the horrible effect of the uh, the withdrawal of heroin. That's an interesting movie, and a sign up from labor perspective in general, as they're like it's they're working class Scottish guys. And how? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that was just a side tangent. We should move on. Okay. Uh, how are things in the arena with the W-2 and the 1099s? Uh, I know I've seen dramatic changes in the past uh, few uh, months, uh, both for the good and for the bad. So uh, uh, what's going on uh, from where you're standing and from where the AWA is defending? Well, you know, we're, like, monitoring things like that to see, like, if, any, if there's been any major developments. It doesn't seem like there's been anything crazy. The newest thing, the thing that caught my eye recently was something about the Business Roundtable. The Business Roundtable okay. is an interesting organization. It's been similar to the Chamber of Commerce in that it's, like, an organization of businesses, but this is more explicitly political in order to act reform. And they're sometimes variously moderate. You know, Obama did want to work with them for uh, improving infrastructure at one point. I think that was his hope. Uh, so they're not Tea Party people, for example, who you can't make a deal with and are horribly inflexible. 
but they are pretty conservative people and the kind of people that often like to dislike labor reform and the type mm-hmm. of things that we're interested in that help consumers and you know workers trying to help ends meet. The biggest thing that recently came out was the nature of shareholder value and how to value it. So it's kind of like axiomatic, you know, the, the catchphrase of business that business exists to increase shareholder value. That's been like the big mantra corporation since the 80s. And it's the catches that we've seen as that's become the end all and be all, you know, things like labor rights, environmental protections, consumer safety uh, go out the window quite often, hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Because they're looking to wage, raise the stock price, for example, versus you know getting the goodwill of their workers or the community where they're based. Uh, so, Business Roundtable seems to have announced that they want to change this, actually, uh, and they've announced new principles that 181 of the largest corporations in America. Uh, signed on to that says it wants to that says that companies should deliver value to their customers that they need to deal fairly and ethically with their suppliers that they need to support the com- the communities in which we, they work and need to take care of workers wow uh so, yeah so this is really interesting uh, it is just a statement by a number of companies, so it's not like legally binding. So if somebody violates these principles, there's consequences. Uh, but it is interesting from you know like a public relations perspective, certainly. See, like the war of words, which is always very important. And these companies quite often, you know, they're not interested in even providing rhetoric that's really pro-labor, you know. So even the few real conservatives turned against this um, statement put out by the Business Roundtable. Most notably, uh, the National Review, which is <laughs> it's an old publication that's very conservative that uh, William, William F. Buckley uh, was the head of for a while. He was an interesting figure back in the day who was big on Reagan. Wow. That that sounds yeah. like a, a lot of uh, change and something uh, well worth uh, keeping our attention on. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is because, you know, you do have, in the theory, uh, it's so hard to make legislation or pass legislation, and the whole idea is is there any bipartisan partners? Is there anybody we can work with to get something done? Uh, so it's really interesting that these people, you know, it seems like they're, they believe, you know, in like this idea of like, at least in principle, like saying these things, you know, so why and what that means, you know, for workers fighting, you know, dealing with wages. Uh, so we'll have to see what uh, they really put their money uh, where their mouth is, as it were. So that would be quite interesting. 
want. Yeah, that sounds uh, extremely uh, interesting and, and again, well worth uh, uh, paying attention to to see how it develops. So it seems like a lot is going on. Um, as I've stated before, um, I do get um, <coughs> emails from the Department of Labor and several other uh, government initiatives. And uh, um, despite the uh, red flags and concerns that are popping up in the news, uh, there appear to be many good things happening uh, in the labor field as well. Oh, nice. Nice. It's, uh, it's great to see. You know, there is always like so much coming out, you know, that's um, hard to keep on track of everything. There is, of course, like great talk of recession. You know, between yes. this idea of that's Trump's trade war. Uh, quite unfortunately, like this talk of recession, even when working condition with like while unemployment is low, there's so many other measures of like labor standards that are exceedingly poor right now. Um, that you know, and they always go down, and they always get worse in a recession. Yes, so, quite something that's quite uh, unfortunate, and it, as it is the case, but it is something to be. Uh, monitoring and burials. Now, this is a time where uh, the trust for the information that uh, we're receiving uh, is uh, low and that everything and anything is being uh, questioned and being accused of being uh, fake news or inaccurate or exaggeration. Um, if you want to keep on top of uh, uh, labor, um, what are the most reliable places that you can go to find out what's going on? Um, if, as some people say, you can't trust uh, our news providers, and if other people, as they say, you can't trust uh, the government sources, where would you go to get uh, ac information that all sides would consider accurate? Well, you know, there's always, <laughs> it's always difficult, but there are some sites that are really uh, interesting. Um, and their coverage of labor issues. Uh, Politico.com, from like a mm -hmm. policy perspective of like Washington, D.C. and federal news, is uh, really good. You know, they come out with a uh, morning listserv about the big stories on labor issues and the Department of Labor, um, the administration and Congress, and any developments in laws. Uh, there's a few that are also that are interesting. There's In These Times, which follows unions and their relationships with the Democratic Party and, you know, pushing progressive issues. Uh, that's a really good one. Uh, you know, there's a technical blog for those who really like getting in the weeds on Labor Daily. Um, Labor, Labor Daily? On Labor Daily is a really interesting one put out, I think, uh, by Harvard, by experts at Harvard that may have had positions in the Obama administration, if I'm correct. So there's always, like, different things uh, that way to read. Um, there's a couple that are really interesting because, like, you, once in a while you will find, like, a good labor story in, like, the Wall Street Journal, for example, which is something you really don't expect, you know, nowadays, they generally have a conservative reputation uh, nine out of ten times, but they did have a few good stories, for example, on the gig economy. 
Mm. So you, there are a few like business magazines like that. Uh, Fast Company, I think, has is uh, one of those that has uh, good stories every so often. Um, quite interesting. Uh, there's Descent Magazine, which uh, uh, sponsors a podcast with uh, labor journalist Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chang. It's very interesting about uh, labor issues and some of the issues of activists and some of those com- ways that they combine. Uh, and for those Bernie creds, you know, there is a Jacobin magazine, which is very left-facing. Uh, uh, you know, they are, like, from a perspective of the left, which does not really value, you know, like a statement that would come out from, like, Business Roundtable. You know, they would probably dismiss it as BS, even if it is, like, nice rhetoric. For example, you know, they're really interested in building the team or building the recruits for, you know, great reform uh, and electing Bernie, among other things. So it's really interesting then, but they have, like, a great views on workers and understand, like, labor issues and, like, how they're all really connected, for example. So Jacobin's uh, pretty interesting that way. Uh, Twitter is great this way. You know, I always... People do hate social media, and it does have a lot of negative effects. But it is quite uh, good, you know, if you're following, you know, niche news. But, you know, in many ways, you know, labor issues have become a niche news. You know, it's not everywhere. It's not in newspaper the way it used to be, at least. You know, you'll find it in the business section every so often, and when there are good stories, they are in, like, the business section very mm-hmm. often. So you oftentimes do have to dig, and it's difficult that way. And there's also interesting uh, podcasts. Uh, <laughs> I suppose we could uh, give a couple of shout-outs to podcasts. There's Art and okay. Labor. Art and Labor is an interesting podcast because they're really following, like, old uh, cultural workers in... New York City, and they make a lot of really good points. Uh, for those who like Jacobin, you know, they would be interesting uh, as well. So there's a few things like that. You know, I'm always big on listservs. So a few okay. think tanks, like the Center of Ameri- uh, for American Progress put out interesting listservs uh, about their work. For example, you know, they have a thing called Talk Poverty, like a newsletter there online. I actually wrote an article for them, uh, so that was interesting. That is awesome. Uh, so, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I wrote it for them last year, so I suppose uh, I'm not unbiased, but uh, objective journalism is quite difficult. You know, as Howard Zinn said, you can't be neutral on a moving train. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah we all have our biases, and it's important to recognize that. Uh... Yeah, yeah, so, like, that's the thing, you know, so if you're reporting on, like, some of these situations, you know, you kind of want to hear, like, the, you know, the bare facts of it to not be debated the way they often are, as if climate change or, like, theory of evolution, you know, it's like it's an established fact here, you know, 
we evolved from monkey-like things. You know, like there's issues with the economy that are bad. There isn't really a debate on that. So it's difficult. It's difficult in this day and age. It's difficult because I think the right and corporations understand these issues a lot better than a lot of leftists and a lot of labor people who are scrambling. It's very difficult nowadays dealing with some of these economic conditions uh, which we're facing. But yeah, I know. There's always hubs, there's always people organizing. And that's a good thing, too. And uh, one of the things I'm going to try to do in the evolution of uh, this particular podcast uh, is to draw uh, you know, more attention to people who are uh, doing things and the different things that they're doing. And that's part of what, uh, when we get together, I'd like to discuss with you, you know, because uh, um, you know, this has been a very interesting journey and uh, it's had an effect and uh, a positive effect. Uh, on uh, not only myself, but uh, the listeners and the hosts. So uh, uh, getting everybody's uh, feedback, I see that there's a lot we can do uh, more, even with just the materials we have uh, on hand and the talent that we have on hand, we could uh, reapply it a little bit differently, um, even if it's just in the first phases of raising uh, awareness, because uh, there is so much going on that it's, it's, it's literally mind-boggling. <laughs> <laughs> to try to even keep up with what's going on. Yeah, it is quite difficult in this day and age uh, with all the news. And, you know, people live busy lives. You know, somebody who's going to become active in the community is often active on multiple fronts and has multiple interests. Right. So, and that's the thing I'm finding. Yeah, yeah, the... the that's one of the things I'm finding that uh, we can only do the best we can. Uh, and that's all we can expect from others that they do the best they can. And uh, that uh, um, even though I don't have a wide range of things I'm addressing, I do have a, a range of things that I'm personally addressing and it's, it's proving to spread me out too thin, uh, even though the focus is limited. So uh, lately I've been like looking at everything and trying to like put everything under one umbrella or focus it a little bit better so that we can be more effective. Cause otherwise it's like being a, a small cork on a huge ocean, you know? So that's, that's not very, that's not very helpful toward anybody. Yeah. It can be uh, really difficult in that respect. Uh, quite unfortunately, you know, it is important to focus on things, you know, in life, you know, you do do a better job. They say, Versus having your attention constantly divided. It's something I have, I've had to deal with, you know, as somebody with ADD, for example. It is quite difficult. I've, I have that too. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> anything, yeah. anything that, you know, I got, I got, my eyes and my attention go there. So I've uh, ascertained whether it's uh, good or not good or, you know, whatever. So uh, it's very difficult to stay focused with ADD. Yeah, now you've been, so, yeah. you've been on this uh, journey uh, for quite a while now, and uh, uh, you're doing a lot of uh, interesting uh, um, you know, things in relation to your journey, and uh, you've been reaching out to ever-widening uh, uh, circles. Um, how has this journey transformed you? Well, that's an interesting question there. Has it transformed me? 
you know, it yeah. certainly has given me like new perspectives that I've like learned from. For example, and I've met people I otherwise would not have met. Um, it's certainly been interesting, you know, like getting an organization together and learning about the nuances of that and you know, all the of the issues in the labor market, you know, certainly are interesting and been fascinating to learn about. So it's been good. It's been good in a number of ways. You know, I've become ideally uh better at leading the group, you know, after putting together something like this. Uh I hope it has impacted and improved my writing as you know, I often do craft members to our membership, which are fairly well received, I'd say. You know, we do speak to a number of people, different groups that we are interested in helping, that while they may not all understand it, you know, they all have, you know, similar uh, issues with regard to the gig economy and labor uh, that make it so that they should work together. Oh, most certainly so. And uh, I like the fact that uh, your focus has expanded beyond uh, what uh, assistance people uh, consider from labor organizations to become more holistic and uh, more embracing of a person's uh, entire life rather than splitting out up into little uh, categories like this is your work life, this is your home life, this is your hobby, this is, uh, you know, we're just looking at, at enriching somebody's life uh, generally and uh, uh, that is something that gets me very excited about what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad uh, you like that part. You know, it's interesting because there is like a great divide in the like the way people think about things. You know, how they are at work versus at home and organizing people and the way in which they live their lives. You know, and there's ways I think connect people. You know, in different ways that you know, they probably previously may not have thought of, for example, in terms of getting involved or looking at certain organizations in a different uh, uh, fashion, which can help them. Now, uh, in the segment following this one, you have uh, Lewis Hyman as a guest. Would you care to tell us a little bit about uh, Lewis Hyman? Yes, Lewis is an interesting individual. He is a professor at uh, Cornell University where he uh, teaches at the IRL, I think I believe, Industrial Relations and Labor School, uh, something like that. So he wrote a book, uh, I believe it's called Tempt, uh, and he can tell us a little more about that and how the gig economy really developed. Mm-hmm. For example, in terms of its history and how it's really affecting workers now and on these different levels. So, yeah, no, so his book, Attempt, uh, How American Work, um, American Business and the American Dream Became Temporary, is his book that came out last year. It's really fascinating. So, it sounds know, really what, like, Yeah, yeah. So this is like the issue that you know, like that we've found to be like one of the biggest issues, like how like jobs really aren't even that strong the way it was 
in the 30s where everybody had a stable job. Everybody was a W-2. Mm-hmm. Plants that were like famously unionized in the 30s and became like the basis of, you know, the industrial labor movement, which became so prominent in that era, you know, the 30s to the 50s. Uh, and they started falling apart around uh, the time Reagan got in and broke the Patco uh, strike of air traffic controllers. I remember that. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. And at the time, yeah. uh, who would have known that uh, that would be the uh, domino effect uh, uh, after that happened uh, that helped uh, create the circumstances we currently find ourselves in? Yeah, yeah. So people really see that as being one of the big things that started this trend. And it's really... Um, horrible in many ways because, you know, Ronald Reagan was the first president who was officially a labor union leader. Since he was, what, president of the Screen Actors Guild, but then turned famously anti-communist when that meant becoming very conservative and selling out a lot lot of other of his principles, I imagine. Wow. Whoa. I know that everyone who's involved in uh, an effort uh, has like a goal where they see their dream uh, realized. And I know that you've shared uh, before um, where you would like uh, the AWA to be in in the near future and in the the far future. Um, But if you could determine how everything will unfold, what type of change do you wish to create with the AWA? Yeah, we are looking to spark, ultimately, you know, a movement here that changes people's minds and, like, makes them understand their power as a worker and their power with others as the workers combined can be even stronger. You know, it's famously in the song Solidarity Forever. There's nothing weaker than uh, the force of one. You know, it's by working together that people are able to make change in their lives. They are able to, you know, negotiate with their bosses to create, you know, better conditions, um, which they're not like running like a chicken with with its head chopped off around. So, you know, that's like what we're really trying to strengthen here. And we are looking to bring together people you know, in a large organization that can help people for example, that can provide them resources when they're not sure where to go in terms of dealing with issues at work. That is incredibly awesome. And uh, I've only met a handful of the people in the AWM. It's a remarkable bunch of people that you have. So uh, I'm very optimistic for uh, the future of these individuals, uh, of yourself and your organization. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, you know, uh, we are trying to establish a good group, you know, as we... uh, make progress towards our ultimate goal. And your guest appears to be here. Um, So would you like to take a brief uh, musical interlude or would you like to just move straight into Common Bonds? No, I always like the songs. We'll take an interlude. Okay, we're going to listen to Evolve by Bone Poets Orchestra, and then we'll be back uh, with Common Bonds, hosted by Dan Uloa, and uh, our guest is Louis Hyman. 
our next segment, Common Bonds, hosted by Dan Uloa, and our guest today is Professor Lewis Hyman. 
Hi. Greetings. Great to be on the show. Hello. Fantastic. Hi. Are you there, Dan? Yes. Hi, Lewis. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so tell the audience about uh, your work then. Uh, so I'm an economic historian, and I work on the history of capitalism. And so I wrote a couple books on the history of personal debt, but my most recent book is a book called Temp, and it's about how work became so insecure in America today. Yeah, I thought it was a really good uh, book myself, you know, when I read it, and I thought it was, like, really interesting, you know, the different forces that are kind of, like, squeezing at the middle here. What What did you felt like about it? What kind of parts um, maybe we could talk about what parts did you find interesting? Yes, it was really interesting, you know, like as you described, one like the rise of these temp agencies in terms of like the way they're supposed to just like take a few workers here and there and then it grows and grows, for example. And then you have, you know, the McKinsey Institute, which seems to be pushing all the corporations towards slimmer packages. And then but you really get a sense of like the nature of the industry and the nature of like an economic system because you have some of these companies which had good founders and good principles. I think Hewlett Packard, I think, is described in this fashion. But then Carly Fiorona took over uh, and didn't share his values. Yeah, so this, a lot of the story is about how this isn't about evil doers. This is about sort of the sort of insidious way that we begin to value the short term over the long term. We begin to value um, this imagination of entrepreneurship over management um, and the way in which our economy was transformed from the inside out, from the remaking of the corporation from top to bottom, how executives were displaced by consultants and office workers by temps and factory workers um, by migrant work, migrant laborers. And to think about how across all those different layers of the corporation, work became more insecure. And for some people, it made much more money for executives and for consultants. But for the rest of us, it just became a way for that post-war dream of stability to be eroded. Yeah, it's really interesting that way because it's always the winners at the top, which everybody's supposed to aspire to, but the very nature of it means like there isn't enough room for everybody to be a consultant. Not everybody you know, can be the small businessman who prospers in this type of setup. Yeah, that's right. Um, so the, it's part of the story of the rising insecurity. And the, and the story we're often told about that is that it's a story of technology, right? The story that it's about progress and it's because it's technology, it's inevitable. But the story I, I try to emphasize is this, an organizational story. It's about the choices we made about how we organize our businesses and organize our workplaces and, you know, to understand how there's very different models for success and the models that we have been living under for the past 50 years have been delivering a lot of money to people at the top, but for the rest of us, it's just gotten steadily worse. 
Yeah, that's really true. It's really uh, stark, you know, like hearing the story as it starts in the 60s when this wasn't an issue at all. You had, you know, solid corporations versus now when, you know, it's a lot of these corporations are just like sliced up here and there, you know, like they're operating subsidies, for example, and that's been like a major hindrance we, you know, we've discussed in the show to organizing quite often to dealing with some of these issues. Yeah, to or, like who are we actually organizing? Are we organizing the, the company or their subcontractors and who, you know, there's been all kinds of debates over the last 20 years over how to do that strategically, but then just legally, how do you organize? And it's hard because the way capitalism is organized now is by supply chains, right? So it doesn't make any sense to really think of just one firm um, as that, uh, as that, sort of really that business, right? The Walmart is not just Walmart. Walmart is also all its suppliers. You know, Walmart is also um, all the suppliers of those suppliers. And that's how we need to organize. And we can't organize these days because of certain kinds of laws about unionization. Um, and uh, it's made it harder to for working people to demand their fair share of this prosperity. Yeah, it's really interesting. I remember in the book where you start talking about, I think, like an effort in the 80s uh, around the around the movie 9 to 5, you know, I think in the Boston area of trying to organize, like, the office workers there and, like, the issues that they faced. I thought that was, like, really interesting. Well, thanks. Yeah, it, it's easy to remember that great Dolly Parton song and the movie, but it was actually based on actual office workers uh, trying to organize women in offices in different areas, finance, publishing. And in the book, I write about their attempts to organize temp workers, uh, which was not successful. And it sort of presages a lot of the ways in which we are today in the gig economy and um, in the subcontracted economy and whatever you want to call it, but just the way in which there's no place where so many of us work. Um, And it's harder because we're so easily replaced these days. Yeah, yeah, it is really difficult in that way. But you do describe, I think, a few positive, interesting developments. I remember there was the idea of blockchain, for example. I thought it was the most modern. Yeah, so there's a, there's things to be recommended about the independent workforce. So it's easy to be all doom and gloom. But it is nice to have flexible work, and it is nice to not do the same thing all day. The question is, how do we create a combination of autonomy and security? You know, that that sort of nostalgia we have for the post-war is nostalgia for, you know, whether you're in the office or in the factory, it was kind of soul-crushing work, right? If you're working on an assembly line doing the same thing all day long, uh, you're basically turning a human into a machine. And even if you're in an office and you're well-paid, well, doing paperwork, we all know, is is also soul-crushing. So the question is, how do we use technology not to accelerate uh, our proletarianization, but to how to liberate us to have more fulfilling, more human, more humane lives? And that is something that 
it's hard to find that middle path, I think, uh, these days. Either are a techno-utopianist or a techno-dystopianist, but it's always this feeling of inevitability that we don't have choice. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was to help people see how many choices were made along the path to now. Yeah, it is really interesting that way when you do say either one one way or the other. I think we've had debates in this show one way or the other uh, where I try to believe that there is a way through, you know, this automation, for example, in a way towards, you know, like a more equitable thing versus that we shouldn't, like, fight for higher wages, for example, which seems to be, like, one of the arguments, you know, to, like, to stop automation, we just, like, accept the horrible conditions. And it is, like, really interesting to see, you know, in retrospect, you know, some of those jobs that people thought were, like, really good middle-class jobs, the nature of those conditions were poor, especially, like, in I mean, industrial had... settings. Yeah, I mean, they had good paychecks sometimes, but, you know, if you read... The, if you study the lives of the people who worked in those factories, nobody liked the work itself. Like nobody says, wakes up in the morning and says, oh, I really want to turn a wrench all day long for the next 8 or 10 or 12 hours. No one has ever said that ever. Uh, and they did it because they loved their family, because they wanted job security. And, you know, I, at least for me, you know, the real question is how do we use this technology to create a better standard of living, but also a better way of living and to think about how to do that um, so we don't have to return to the factory or to the, the mound of paperwork at the office. And it's, it's hard because you talk to people and they say, let's just stop technology. Let's just keep things the way they are. It's like, well, actually most people have terrible jobs. Um, you know, I think we're going to look back a uh, hundred years from now and, and just be flabbergasted that some people were forced to spend their whole lives making change for somebody else at a cash register and just think, how is that a good use of a human life? You know, nobody wants to do that. Lots of people want to, you know, teach and make art and uh, do all kinds of creative activities or just take care of other people, but nobody wants to make change. And (laughs) it's that kind of thing that we're going to think about when we think about why are we so attached to this kind of way of living? Yeah. So that's like a really interesting, interesting perspective. How do you think we then get to a place where we can view, you know, making change in such a way then? I don't know. It's, it's so, I mean, part of it is to have a historical perspective on, you know, if I said to you, the only way you're going to make a, a living is to walk in a tunnel beneath my house at night and scoop out my toilets from the night soil, which is, of course, what people did in the 19th century. You think, uh, well, why don't, why don't we have plumbing instead, Professor Hyman? Maybe we should do that instead, and I will go do something else. And it could be anything else. It could be taking care of your kids, taking care of the earth doing, you know, doing research science, or, I mean, there's all kinds of things that humans can do that are, you know, some of which require you to be really smart, but most of which don't, but all of which are better uses of our time than trying to be more like machines. And uh, that's where I get pretty frustrated sometimes with the conversation that we should be Luddites. Uh, We should be stopping technology. It's like, no, we should be 
making sure that we are being more productive, but that the value of that productivity gets delivered to the workers and the people who are displaced, but also just to the rest of us. And, and you know, that's, that's how it becomes a virtuous cycle of progress um, in the economy. And right now we're just very stalled out. Why do you think that is then that we're stalled out? I think we just made some choices that took us down a road where all the money is being made in these short-term projects, these short-term financial projects, these um, clever schemes. And along the way, we stopped investing in science. We stopped investing in the science that creates new industries. And I think part of it is that, right, that – you know, we have new industries. You know, imagine, remember back when we just first got uh, aerospace, we first got, you know, planes. You know, millions of people suddenly got jobs overnight. And this happens whenever you have a new industry that you employ millions of people. So when the aerospace industry first came into being in the late 30s and early 40s, suddenly uh, 40% of Los Angeles was working for aerospace companies. And from 0% in 1936. In 1936, more people worked in candy manufacturing in the United States than worked in the aerospace industry. <laughs> and for me, this is like an alarm. This is like, this is reality. It's like, oh, yeah, because when you start something new, you need lots of people. And over time, you replace those people with machines, and those people go on to do something else. Well, we haven't had that for quite some time. And, and, but part of it is this sort of failure of imagination. Um, that began to happen in the 1970s. We kind of gave up. And you see some of it coming back, right? I mean, the the self-driving cars, right? So, like, whatever you think about self-driving cars, at least it's audacious, right? And it's a kind of, like, American arrogance that we haven't seen for quite some time about the future. And that's why I think it's so exciting to people. You know, it sounds like space planes or... uh, um, space elevators or something like that. And it's, you know, we've had this big stall out. Um, and there's some people who think it's because we've learned all the science we can learn. But I, I just don't think that's true. I think, I think it's just a question of, you know, our best and brightest going to Wall Street uh, to make new financial models instead of going into the, the lab and instead of going into thinking up new ways to employ people and make new kinds of, so I, that's, that's where, that's where I come down on that and smart people disagree, but I'm, you know, I'm on the side of optimism. No, no. Yeah. We have touched on that on this show where I've argued that, you know, a lot of those people who were forced out to farm in the turn of the 19th century, you know, took jobs, you know, in like modern industries that way, you know, even Walt Disney, you know, he, you know, worked on a family farm where he started to, like, love to draw animals. And then, you know, he, you know, started, you know, an animation studio, which employed a lot of people. You know, and that's like a new industry that really didn't exist prior to that time. The question yeah. is, like, I really think is, like, the nature of, like, labor standards where, you know, you pay people in this new industry, like, good money enough to really create, like, the virtual circle where, you know, if they buy something, then that helps other people get jobs and so on and so forth. And that can only happen if you have strong labor movements, right? 
um, or at least a commitment of understanding of why people need to be paid enough. And, you know, for the last 50 years, we've just seen our labor organizations seed these new kinds of areas. And it's not just seeding, but it is actually really hard to organize, you know, the retail sector, right? Um, you know, there's tens of thousands of Walmarts, and there are very, you know, it's impossible to organize that. You know, that's not how the UAW organized General Motors. They organized General Motors by a sit-down strike in one factory that shut down the whole supply chain. But the rules of work in this country, the laws of this country, don't allow us to organize along supply chains, even though that's how the economy is organized. And so I think part of what we're going to get to eventually is those laws have to change. Um, or, you know, at the end of the book, I write a section called What Can Labor Learn from Uber? And the signature thing about Uber was that they didn't obey any laws. They rejected all those laws. They just did it. And then afterwards, they made it legal by their power. And that's exactly what labor unions did in the 1930s. They made it legal, and I think that's what we're going to have to see again before things get better. Yeah, I think there's certainly an argument to be made to that point where it's something pretty much like civil disobedience, uh, where workers famously occupied the Flint uh, General Motors factory and shut down the supply chain and were able to subsequently like negotiate a good position for themselves and inspired others to do so. You know, here we have the law is exceedingly difficult that way. You know, you have, if people are afraid, you know, to break the law, are told to not break the law. But then, you know, when you have an unjust law, is it really that bad? You know, if you think in the tradition of, like, Rosa Parks, Dr. Martin Luther King, you know, you changes the perspective in that fashion. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I think that, you know, the laws are made, but just because it's a law doesn't mean it's just. And, you know, I think we need to think about that. You know, how do we exert power in this country so that the laws have to change? And I, I think it is a, a good reminder to see just how quickly Uber was, quote, unquote, banned and, quote, unquote, illegal to now it's everywhere. And everyone just accepts it. And, you know, I'm not saying that's, uh, a bad thing or a good thing about Uber. I'm just saying that's that's a real thing. That's a real thing about how the world actually works, and that's something that often has been forgotten in these conversations. People think, oh, let's pass a law, let's let's change the rules. It's like, well, no, that's not how the rules get changed. It's not changed by like policymakers all the time. It's also changed by people organizing um, and being smart about their strategy. The problem is it's a lot easier for, you know, in my experience, like I've seen this, like it's a lot easier for like the labor leaders that donate to like the, like the Democratic Party to then like lobby them and like have their, a few of their members come for a lobby day and push for like small changes here and there versus like the, you know, the nature of committing civil disobedience and sparking a movement that can subsequently be harnessed for change. You know, it's a lot different. It's a lot more difficult. You know, and a lot of those people that 
you know, our willingness to spark a movement aren't always the ones that, like, love those insider deals and the nature of how they're made. Well, I think it's also the people who are at the heads of these organizations just being responsible. They want to, don't want to lose what they have, right, what they already have, you know, delivering for their own membership. And it's this old question of are, are unions for the union membership or are they for the working class, right? And the, there's, there's arguments being made on both sides. And, you know, it's not going to be people who are outside the outside that world who are going to make it happen. It has to be the people who are within within that world, who are those workers, who are those organizers. And, you know, that's what happened in the 30s, too, so that the, the labor, the, the industrial unions broke away from the American Federation of Labor. They said the American Federation of Labor didn't want them to organize in this way. They were afraid of losing even more ground. Uh, they wanted them to obey the law, and then they broke away, and and that's how that's how the sort of industrial unionization, which was the foundation of the post-war working class prosperity, uh, was kicked off. And so, you know, it's going to take people who don't feel like they have an alternative to really make it happen. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. You know, it really does take that you know it is somehow like your last option you know if we don't strike if we don't break this how are we going to ever get anything better for example so it's really interesting reading about that past you know history of like the cio congress of industrial Org- organizations and how that really became a thing for quite some time independent of the afl well we're often told that it's enough to simply sing kumbaya or, you know, try to hold up a mirror to the injustices of the world. It's like nobody, everybody knows that the world's unjust. Everyone knows that singing won't help anything. And we have told these stories, you know, about marching in the street. Well, you know, the, the places where it worked is, is occupying those buildings, occupying those factories and shops and ports and places that stop the movement of the supply chains and right now it's totally illegal, right? And if a big union organized to do that, well, they would lose a lot. They would lose whatever grounds they have now. And like you said, it's, it's a lot easier to just meet with Democrats um, and push for incrementalist change when we need something quite different. Yeah. And it is, quite unfortunate that way so it is you know interesting to see what can you do to kind of like spark something the way you know the way Rosa Parks sparks something the way the UAW sparks something by like sitting in you know how do you how do you go viral that way how did Occupy Wall Street become a thing initially versus just like a few dozen activists angry but then you know, they at least were able to change the conversation, you know, that being a more modern example versus, you know, the 1930s. Yeah, and they, they definitely were able to change the conversation. I think Occupy, whatever you, people might be critical of it, of, um, first of all, it's, it's much harder to occupy Wall Street literally, right? Because it's, it's digital. So where do you occupy that exactly? It's uh, not in the park. It's certainly not in that building um, in the exchange anymore. Um, but I think it did change the conversation, the language we use to recognize inequality in this country. 
So, you know, I think the places where this system is still very vulnerable is in the ports. You know, and during Occupy, you know, they didn't care if protesters were in parks. It's only when protesters began to go for the docks um, that the you know, that the tear gas came out and the the, the billy clubs came out. And if you look at, you know, the pictures of when the people moved to Occupy the Oakland ports, that's exactly what happened because the ports are where everything is vulnerable. So you can't get all that stuff from the Chinese factories to the Walmart stores without taking it through big container ports. And that's, that's where capitalism is most vulnerable and where we need to have leverage. And it's not a coincidence that the unions that still work in those ports are extremely well paid um, and also just really cordoned off from the rest of the working class. Oh, that's interesting. Thinking, thinking of it that way about the nature of the supply chain and the ports. We have ports around yeah. here. That might be an interesting yeah. avenue. No, I, I think that if you, those are really the choke points. Um, you know, the ports, the warehouses, the truckers. You know, thinking about how things move, how capital moves around as commodities. Um, that's rather than just the places where it's made or where it's sold. Um, and it's, the question is how do we create solidarity between those different places? And, you know, I've been very heartened to see so much activism coming out of the Amazon warehouses. Um, you know, and I think it's, it's, it's the beginning of a, a shifting sense of how this game is played. Yeah, yeah, I think people have seen that Amazon might be, like, one of the next big things that really needs, like, be organized, for example, in the manner of General Motors back in the day. And, you know, it really influences a lot of our life. And, you know, it's become a mega corporation, Amazon, you know. Every fourth person is watching, you know, their shows on their streaming network or buying their stuff and it arrives the next day and they're getting all their little cool, you know, gadgets and dresses that used to be found in stores after great searching in the blink of an eye. So it's a really big issue for the future. Yeah, I mean, it is convenient. The question is, you know, and and that's not bad in and of itself. The question is, how do we make sure that the people who work there are have secure lives, and the people who are displaced have opportunities? And you know, to think about that. I mean, Amazon's also an interesting company because it's not just about the stuff in their own warehouses, but they act as a middleman for all these. Small, small businesses, you know, um, around the world selling through their platform. And in some ways, Etsy is a similar kind of thing. And, that, and that's kind of interesting. Like, what would it be like if, if we spent our time making things that we like to make and selling it to other people? And right now, those big platforms take, just take a major cut of that money. Um, and, but it's something that this kind of system didn't exist 15 years ago. So we're still trying to figure out what that means for our society. Um, And that's why it's important to have these kinds of conversations. 
Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned like the Etsy sellers. That was one of like the more interesting cons- categories of like workers I was finding uh, when I was researching, you know, from my stump speech on like gig, gig economy issues. Because you do have this class of people that they're more like small business people than the way like the Uber drivers are, for example. You know, they have this thing that they do and they're able to do it without a larger corporation. Sometimes the problem is they need the platform like Etsy to sell it. Yeah, and then the question is like, what's the cut there? But yeah, like you said, there's there's such a wide range of people, and this is what the book was really about. So they're showing that range of people and the range of their conditions over time, rather than just saying, you know, people, lots of people don't want Uber just to be the face of the gig economy, um, but you know, there's other kinds of parts of it. And they also, in the process, you know, just like there's a lots of different kinds of jobs in the W-2 economy, you know, the CEO of a large corporation and the person working at Starbucks uh, is also a W-2 employee. In a lot of ways, the, the gig economy is based out of that service economy. It's based out of the insecurity of working retail or selling coffee those people are trying to make up the hours and their shifts that they don't get at those, you know, you know, traditional kinds of jobs. And, you know, that that's part of it, that in the book I write that Uber is the waste product of the service economy. And I wrote that because it, it's impossible to have Uber that people would choose to do that without the insecurity and uncertainty of, normal retail work and that's very different than you know etsy or some other kind of thing where you're sort of acting as under you have your own autonomy your control over your time over what you make which to my mind is, is a great way to spend your life you know like having control over it making what you want that's that sounds very free to me as opposed to being told by a machine who to drive to where and to me as well, yeah. this has been an interesting uh, interview. I know, Professor Hyman, uh, thank you for your time that you had indicated to let you know when half an hour has passed, so I'm doing so now. Uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate the conversation, guys, and uh, thank you for having me on the show. Well, you're How very welcome. It's great speaking you. with you. Thank you so much. You have a great evening. All right, bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Wow, that was phenomenally fascinating, uh, Dan. I, I learned a lot from uh, this interview. Yeah, yeah. Lewis Hyman was really interesting, you know, reading his book and all the nuances of, you know, the history as it's, of the gig economy as it's really, like, unfurled prior to, you know, the computers in the digital age, which really kicked in the high gear the way and brought it to where we are now, going back to, you know, even when you had, like, temp agencies and, like, how they gutted and, like, certain companies to replace, like, a lot of people with temps, for example. Right. Like, the negative effects of that. Or, as I was mentioning, you know, it was, like, a big thing when, like, Hewlett-Packard was initially a good company that took care of its workers, but when the founder change, you know, the new CEO wasn't as compassionate, for example, and it really brings, like, 
brings to mind, you know, like the nature of the whole system, which creates these conditions. You know, you can have like, oh, we're going to have this great company, and it's, we're going to take care of our workers, and we're going to make a great product. But you know, if you're competing against these other forces, if the people who succeed you don't believe in it, what's going to happen? Like, this is kind of like the nature of what's going to happen, and we've seen that in when a lot of like the New Deal, you know, uh, educated corporate owners moved over for, like, people that had grown up in prosperity, a lot of those corporations really stopped being so benevolent, you know? Right, right. And, uh, again, it's uh, it's a matter, as uh, your guest pointed out, it's a matter of uh, perspectives and time, you know, that uh, uh, basically things that are operating very well uh, – wind up changing the world and uh, just by the very existence and the very fact that they're doing what they're doing, they change our reality uh, in certain spheres of life, especially uh, employment. Yeah. You know, we do see, you know, the change of technology and, you know, when unions were big, we found people working in these large warehouses and large factories of what, 300 plus. Thousands of people worked at, like, the General Motor uh, car factories, car plants that were organized in the fashion that we were discussing, for example. Now you only have, like, what, a couple, 200 people work at Walmart or something? Like, it's not that much. And so it's really difficult that way for workers, for one. It is very difficult, and even online, uh, because uh, Lewis uh, uh, was talking about Etsy and uh, the – uh, exciting aspects of that. Uh, it is very exciting to work uh, through Amazon and eBay and Etsy and uh, a lot of other places. Um, however, uh, after a lot of people set it up and make uh, money from it, it becomes increasingly more difficult uh, to make money uh, selling in those uh, venues. And the rules become more restrictive and your profits become, <coughs> excuse me, less. Yeah, when you start just having, for example, in that situation, just like the privileged class that got in in the initial rush basically dictates the market and, like, benefits from it uh, quite often. And it's difficult in that fashion for new people to come in and do similar things. So a new gift uh, we might have to uh, develop and uh, share the techniques for uh, passing it on is the ability to recognize uh, <coughs> the next wave and start riding it from the beginning rather than waiting till it's established. Because once it's established, uh, it doesn't uh, produce as much as it did, you know, when it was first starting out. Yeah, yeah, it certainly uh interesting that way, you know, trying to keep track of trends and see which one is really rising, what do we have to take care of and something like the gig economy that seemed initially to affect just some blue collar workers has now become you know, an issue where it affects a lot of white collar workers, you know, a lot of office workers a lot of people who thought they would have you know, permanent jobs, permanent positions now have to be entrepreneurs for example they really want to try to survive and survive well. 
And uh, the rules keep changing, like uh, even these rules with the uh, 1099s and uh, W-2s and uh, that in a very short period of time changed the entire landscape uh, that I was, uh, you know, the entire game board that I was playing on. So all of a sudden that game uh, was shelved. So uh, it, it, it's again, start off like Wile E. Coyote from the beginning and try to figure out, okay, uh, you know, I can't do anything about this. Uh, what is this new landscape and um, how can I uh, successfully navigate on this board? And, you know, where most of the spaces are blind and the rules aren't even out. Yeah, that's always the catch, you know, operating and understanding the changes in the economy and adapting to them and adapting to the shifts versus trying to stubbornly hold on to the past, which isn't coming back. Right. So that's why that's why we hmm? no go ahead. That's why like I like we've talked about this like the ideal of like the worker you know dealing with this like society is like part entrepreneur but they're not really building like a business the way you would build like a business in you know in like the sixties uh, or anything that would really scale, you know, it's just really like, if you're like a sole proprietor, you know, like that's you, you know, you are your own brand, you know, a lot of writers and, you know, people on Twitter are their own brand of like their jokes or their style. Right. And like they'll have, and like they need that, their Twitter to promote themselves. And that's like a key component then of who they are and how they survive. And that is effective to a certain extent. Uh, um, uh, just uh, basically on Facebook, where I do the majority of uh, um, the posting for things that I'm doing or people on the show are doing and so forth, um, I get uh, people stopping me and talking to me about uh, something they heard on the show or something they saw on Facebook. So it does uh, communicate. It doesn't work in the way that I initially anticipated, uh, but if, by focusing on what it does do, it, it does do a lot. It's just not what you'd think or not what you'd want initially. So I think once you figure out how to effectively use something, it, it, you can make it work for you. Yeah, you know, people do talk about, like, the benefit of, like, marketing oneself, of building that brand, of showcasing, you know, your your assets. You know, I always like to share my, you know, news articles whenever I have a really good one. It comes out, for example, you know, that's part of it, you know, building on LinkedIn, building on these platforms and reaching out to people, you know, the ideal is that this like translates into clients and respect and more writing, you know, as a writer and, you know, it variously works, you know, sometimes it's easier, you know, if you were just doing this as a career, you know, versus needing to be your own businessman, your own boss, as it were. So, you know, it always varies, the effectiveness of one, the tactics one takes and the nature of branding. There's always a steep learning curve. You know, it's something that yes. you have to get over. You do have to learn a great deal. Um, and uh, that's challenging, but it's also very exciting. And uh, again, uh, part of the benefit of uh, times like this is as uh, 
uh, Lewis uh, was saying um, is that uh, who wants to do a lot of the things you used to do before? You know, people don't really want to do those things. So returning to that is, is maybe not a viable option. Maybe we need to um, look for ways in which we can create something new, something that'll um, use human talent in, in a way that's more beneficial to the person whose talent it is. Yeah, so that's the catch. It's like, do, do people really want to work in an auto factory that, like, had a good job, you know, and then a place that was probably, like, bad for your health, you know, physically demanding that way, a boring job? Like, people talk about, like, the nature of it was boring and, like, how, like, rigid it was. So, like, the idea of, I like the idea of, you know, like, how do we figure out what the future will look like and how do we get to that future? You mm-hmm. know, it takes a certain... um Space of imagination, you know, versus like, oh, you know, it's not practical and we can't pass that, you know, in that legislature full of moderates and X, Y, Z, you know, thinking about like a grander idea that can subsequently inspire people to change things, you know, I think is more, a better way to go about it, for example. And it does take, you know, people who believe very strongly in these types of things, you know, who are willing to, like, do something about their beliefs versus just getting angry at the computer or angry watching the news or angry at the newspaper and frustrated. You know, the idea is to channel that anger into energy and positive change that helps not only the individual but the group of which they are a part of. Wow, we're, we're going to have a very exciting meeting because I'm in I'm in agreement with you, and I have some ideas. <laughs> so um, I would like very much to uh, bounce these ideas. Um, and again, sometimes uh, something that seems to be an obstacle is actually an opportunity, and sometimes the things that seem to be an opportunity uh, are an obstacle. Uh, but either way, uh, you grow by tackling it. So uh, uh, the landscape has changed a little bit uh, here. Uh, in the area in which I operate uh, physically as well. Uh, so that, you know, again, it, it, it involves uh, rethinking some plans and doing things a little bit differently. Um, however, it also is an opportunity to do things on a grander level uh, than the initial plan uh, involved. So uh, uh, I'm very excited by the changes that have happened. Oh, nice. Yeah, it definitely sounds very intriguing. Yeah, it's interesting that you put it that way. Something that looks like an opportunity becomes an obstacle. Something that looks like an obstacle becomes an opportunity. Yeah, I can see that. You know, something, situation that seemed like it was going to be easier, with complications, and then other complications lead to things. So, it's always uh, weird that way of how to navigate system and how to navigate um, events and in industries that are changing and springing up or dying, you know, as we, you know, as we speak. And, and that, you know, that's what people need help doing. And that's what we're going to help them do. Um, on that note, I want to thank you very much, uh, Dan, for another wonderful episode of uh, uh, the AWA Report and Common uh, Bonds. Um, how can people? Uh, learn more about you? How can they tap into all the wonderful things that the American Workforce Association is doing? So we are on Facebook at uh, the American Workforce Association. Our Facebook group is um, the way we really uh, inform people of any uh, news that's relevant to us. And 
stuff we're doing. We also have our website, AmericanWorkforce.net, that we try to keep updated about our actions uh, and where I believe you can sign up for our listserv. Extremely awesome. Uh, Thanks again. Uh, Say hi to all the folks at the American Workforce Association, um, and uh, I will give you a call over the next couple of days. Sounds good, then. Thank you. Okay, be well. Uh, We're going to listen to Bone Post Orchestra's Cry Freedom, and then we'll be back to learn about apprenticeship programs with Bill Waitman. Within the universal mind And if it's 
up to us to bring some balance back. Let it not be said, it's courage that we lack. Crave freedom. We have nothing but to say. Crave freedom. We have nothing but a chance. and welcome back to the Elysium Project. Our show tonight is Options and Opportunities, and we'll be closing with our Athenaeum segment. And today our guest is Bill Waitman, who is an expert on internships. He certainly uh, developed many over the course of his illustrious career. And uh, he is on tonight to uh, um, basically introduce us to that world and tell us how we can navigate it. And he sent a bunch of off some links which are now posted on uh, my timeline for those who'd like to check them out for themselves. Greetings and welcome, Bill. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, it's an exciting field, and I'm, I'm glad you gave me the chance to talk about it. Um, I'm going to give a lot of information, so I, I'm glad I sent you some of those things. Um, I posted uh, them we'll, all. Okay. I just uh, discovered a list of uh, apprenticeship coordinators who are located, uh, you know, around the various 21 counties. For instance, uh, at Bergen Tech, there's uh, Gerard Carroll. Uh, he's over in Hackensack Avenue in Hackensack, New Jersey, and he's the Bergen County, uh, uh, you know, referral guy uh, to some of the apprenticeships. And uh, in that's your county, Bergen County. And uh, yeah. uh, Morris County, I have a jo- uh, Joseph Milk Tusk, and he's at Morris County School of Technology, and he covers three counties, Sussex and uh, Warren County, but there are representatives there also. And nearby Passaic County, uh, John De Palmer is at the uh, Passaic County Technical uh, Institute, which is in Wayne. So there's a, they're in every county, there's somebody uh, that's at least coordinating. And at the top of the hierarchy is actually the Bureau of Apprenticeship Training, which is down in all places, Islin, New Jersey. And um, uh-huh. I have a, I'm going to give you a number, but it's a 732-750-0766. And, uh, you know, there's about six or eight people in that federal office that go over apprenticeship. And uh, uh, let me go right to what apprenticeship is and uh, sure. some subcategories. Um uh, it's curious that two of the greatest apprentices that ever were in our history were Benjamin Franklin, who got apprenticed to pin, uh, print newspapers and the like, and then he passed his craft off to, um, oh, God, uh, 
give me liberty or give me death. Uh, Pat, um, oh, not that's the wrong guy. I'll have to come up with that and think of that. But he's uh, Thomas Paine. Uh, Thomas okay. Paine was uh, uh, was a required uh, required read uh, by the American Continental Army, and uh, he turned out about five hundred and twenty thousand pamphlets when he became skilled at printing. And uh, not only did he engage in our Revolutionary War, but he went over to uh, France to uh, help them out. And in the end, they wanted to kill him because he changed his mind about killing uh, killing King Louis and his wife. Uh, so he fled to the United States, and uh, I think it was only Madison that welcomed him back. Jefferson was his best friend. But uh, okay. that is in history. Uh, what is apprenticeship? Well, apprenticeship is a system of training a new generation of workers or practitioners in a trade or profession with on-the-job training and some accompany, accompanying, accompanying student, uh, study, uh, either like in a Votech or on the company itself, for instance, the uh, IBEW uh, for both uh, Local 164, which is in Burden County and Franklin Lakes, and Local 102, which is in Parsippany, uh, they have their own teachers on site. Uh, most often people are uh, referred to a, a, you know, a technical school where that county administrator is usually located, located as well. Every apprenticeship, modern apprenticeship, requires about 140 hours of study. They get wow. paid on the job, and, you know, and they awesome. have to fit that in every, every one of the years. Uh, I'll get to one apprenticeship that I did, and uh, it became a five-year uh, apprenticeship when I merged two classifications of workers. And that was at the uh, by the Delaware Bridge, way down south. Uh, it was a DuPont facility, and they were going to start bringing other workers uh, from outside to do their job. So I got them to um, agree to merge. They were instrument techs and uh, electricians. Instrument one does more, uh, you know, uh, setting up, and the other does more one more re- repair. So I combined their uh, union apprenticeship programs, and uh, I made it a five-year program. So, and, and actually, I think now that the uh, the IBEW and some other unions have five-year programs, which means they go to school of some sort for five years. They have to put that 140-hour classroom training. But each year, apprenticeship is the only form of training that actually pays you while you're you're learning the trade. You know, uh, so it's, it's something different. You know, they, it, it's, it's you know, a worker with the IBW might get $25 an hour. Uh, apprenticeships, there's thousands of apprenticeships, cooking and uh, fashion work. Uh, they may be one year or two years or four or five years. Uh, bank, there are apprenticeships in banking where somebody with a, a college degree would actually be taking training at the same time as he's, he or she's getting paid. But it's across the table. There are a lot of apprenticeships and so many different occupations. And uh, one union that's in Franklin Lakes, the IBEW, it guarantees its workers, it does the training inside, but uh, when their training is finished, they qualify for a college associate's degree. Uh, And they can actually do some training on a college or or a Votech site. So they come out of it with a two-year degree when they finish. And I think that's excellent. Uh, you'd be surprised that in some uh, Votex, there are uh, teachers who are, you know, uh, trained electricians who have went out and got a teaching degree, 
to teach the trade. Same with automobile mechanics and a lot of other uh, other forms of things. Um, but anyway, it's, uh, there is a, a regulated uh, thing, which is set by the Bureau of Apprenticeship Training, which in our state is in, in Isla, New Jersey. That's a federal agency. And again, I'll give you the number. It's 732-750-0766. Um, if you can email that to me uh, after the show, I'll post it. Uh, um, it's difficult to switch screens and type. So if you send it to me in a message, I, I'll put it up as soon as I get it. Okay. And I will do that. Um, there are uh, unbelievably, um, right currently, there are more than 23,400 registered apprenticeships across the United States. Uh, 3,229 were established last year in physical year uh, 2018. The one thing that I want to stress about apprenticeships and, uh, you know, uh, it's the second way for workers to make a good good amount of money. I'll give you some stats, but they're not entirely accurate. A typical apprentice will will learn 300,000 more than other workers in their lifetime. 300,000 more than other workers in their lifetime. Again, I, I, you know, I've mentioned uh, historical apprentice, apprentices uh, like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Paine, uh, who was required read by the uh, American Continental Army. Today, are, there are craft unions, craft jobs, and company jobs all across the, in the nation. What I mean by company jobs, I did um, a couple, and one I'm very proud of. I did uh, Mars. I uh, went on site. And I came up with a new apprenticeship, and I uh, had to have the BAT and uh, the Bureau of Apprenticeship. And this sounds silly, but there's a uh, an agency in Missouri that gives a nine-digit or, you know, some kind of code for that job. And uh, it was a candy, a candy worker line. Um, I forget what the title was, but he he kept the lines running. Uh, he was like a a, a mechanic on the line. There were also things like at Nabisco, where there was a guy that put up Project Logic controllers. This is the Fairlawn Bakery that you would know uh, up on, I guess, oh, God, Route 208. Is that, uh, uh, you know, there's a close, I think, um, yes. oh, the, the camera company, company Kodak is there. That's one of my worst uh, defeats because I couldn't keep them open. I don't know if they are still open in any degree. But uh, Nabisco, we've gotten a few apprenticeship trades there for uh, these were company uh, company things. Now I did uh, did set up most of the unions uh, in New Jersey with apprenticeship uh, apprenticeship testing and training. I hooked up with a company which is was not treated friendly in New Jersey. You would know it. It's American College Testing, and. Mm-hmm. Um, Sent down with the uh, workers and uh, management on various jobs, and uh, I came up with batteries with their uh, consensus. And uh, American College Testing's work keys is what I used. And uh, I did that with just about every craft union except the uh, IBEW. Um, and th- that was worthwhile. I'm saying to people that this is a consideration. If you're coming out of college, and you don't have a job, uh, try your apprenticeship. Go to your local, you know, uh, 
One Stop, which is there's one in Hackensack for Burden County people, or the Burden County Workforce Investment Board, which is in the same building in Hackensack, or go over to Passaic County and Patterson. There's a one-stop office in Patterson. Uh, there's a council there. Uh, the uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Workforce Investment Board is also pretty close by, and uh, they can help you in uh, Newark. Uh, Kathy, Kathy Weaver is a friend of mine, and she's with the uh, Newark Workforce Investment Board, WIBS, we call them. And uh, over in Morris, Sussex, Warren, uh, there's first of all, there's somebody at uh, at Morris Tech that's an expert, just like all the other technical schools in, in these various districts, that can help you with apprenticeship. And uh, there is testing in many of them. Uh, and they're currently using my test, which comes from American College Testing. It's based, uh-huh. again, on worker and management consensus. And uh, Hercules, I did the same thing with um, uh, Amtrak. I uh, I got cut short because the governor uh, didn't like anything going on with Amtrak. But uh, that was uh, Governor Whitman, which I think she made a sad mistake about doing that because we'd have no training center. But uh, Amtrak too operates apprenticeships, and um, and maybe we could have done a better job because there's also a lot of train accidents, including Amtrak mm. and some of the other ones over there. But these jobs, all these jobs I've mentioned for the most part, the craft unions, Amtrak, uh, you know, there'll be the uh, engineer and maybe the conductor. Uh, some of the other ones in, say, baking or something don't pay as much. But, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a form of training, and you, you get paid while you learn. And each one of these jobs you get paid while you learn. And like the IBW, you might start off with $25 in New Jersey, and you start off with 10 in Florida. So we pay a little higher wages. But it's, a, it's a basically for a company, if there's companies listening, it's a, one-page, it's a one-page form to start an apprenticeship. How easier can it be? There's some That's rules fine. of stipulation. You know, it, and uh, it would be those people in, uh, uh, down in uh, Island. But there's one assigned to, you know, northern New Jersey, one or two assigned to northern New Jersey. They come up. They come up with maybe with somebody from the workforce investment board or the local one-stop. And uh, they meet the employer or, you know, the company. It could be, a, it could be one person like in the day of uh, Benjamin Franklin who made him an apprentice printer. Uh, and there's a whole cadre of jobs. There's thousands of them. I just read you 23,000. Uh, you know, that are now in existence now, uh, that's a great increase from when I was doing it, uh, you know, five, seven, eight years ago. I miss doing it because I saw it as a, a quick point for people to get trained. I'm going to brag right. a little bit, but uh, I had to uh, push my son into something. He needed a job. He was down in the state of Florida. I got him into the, uh, uh, to a private company's electrician program which meant that he went to a Votech. And then he jumped to the union program, which was a mistake in Florida because unions are almost absent without leave. And uh, then I, uh, I got him to come up to uh, local 102, which is in Parsippany. And uh, he stayed with them for, for years, and now he's on his own. And I could say here that he's making $130,000 a year. Wow. Uh, and that's not atypical. That's a kid that actually dropped out of high school, was smart, 
pass the um, uh, whatever it's called. We'll call it the manager's test after he became an apprentice. And now he has his own business. And sometimes he takes on apprentices himself. So this is these are occupations that can equally, uh, equal an Ivy League education. And I got to tell you this. I used to test for most of these apprenticeships. And when we had that last great recession, I tested people from Wall Street for apprenticeship jobs because they weren't that old. They could do them. You know what I'm saying? And they mm-hmm. could somehow get close to the salary that they were making. So it's it's a good deal. And uh, I urge listeners and uh, people that have people with their children at home or something, it's not a bad there's, there's Like I said, there's things in banking, white collar, blue collar, pink collar. In some of these craft unions, uh, there's uh, they start off with twenty twenty five dollars. The average in the country for an, uh, for an apprentice learning is about fifteen dollars an hour. But you look at our prospective areas and in and around your hometown, and there are people working their lives off to get to fifteen dollars an hour. You know, and uh, you know it's supposed yeah. to become the minimum wage. Uh, you and I know that artificial intelligence intelligence is coming, it's coming. and it's going to wipe out the cashier's job. You know, it, even I try to tell even my son that even union workers are going to have to live with, uh, uh, you know, with artificial intelligence, robotics, and the and the like. So that's going to be a big change in in our future. But if somebody bounces out of a white collar job and they're still young enough, they can join an apprenticeship, make a decent wage. And earn while they learn, and it's you can't beat it. I mean, four years no, is great. You know, they they have. And I'm going to repeat it for you. They uh, they have both their. If they go over to their local Votech, there's an apprenticeship coordinator can help guide them. If they go over to their library, like the Hackensack Library, or maybe your, the Crestville Library by you, they can look up uh, literature on apprenticeships. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I guess resumes come in. Uh, the IBEW requires some form of algebra, but you can get quick uh, training in algebra and uh, either you know, via county college. But the difference, the difference is you'll get a salary pretty close to what you're making in a relatively short time. And, again, if you're really good and you continue with lifelong learning, you can get into a teacher in these trades. And the one man I knew in Sussex County was a vice principal. So he was making well over 100000 He had his own private company. Uh, he, too, left the union and did his own work. But the union pays you, uh, you know, they pay you 25 to 80 to to $100 an hour. And you get uh, double or single overtime, uh, you know, and that you can't beat it. And I'm, I'm leaving out the uh, millwrights, the plumbers. The plumbers, I think, have a – a local not far from you in my hometown of Richfield, uh, it's worth the effort to go over there and see them or go to the county apprenticeship coordinator at uh, Hackensack Votech or Passaic County Votech or Newark Votech. Or, or there's one on Route, uh, Route 280 of Votech. That might be Essex County. So these jobs are there, and uh, the, the expectation is that they're going to grow. And, uh, I, again, I'm glad that you gave me this opportunity because people think that it's, it's, there's some kind of stigma in going into these jobs, and they're not. Again, the typical apprenticeship will earn 300000 more than other workers in their lifetimes. 
You know, you can't go wrong there. And that's calling a, no, you that's a lot of white time. You know, a lot of white, uh, white you, collar work. Go ahead. Why do you think that uh, people uh, uh, feel that these things are stigmatized? Because they're judging by maybe by the, uh, you know, the uniform, maybe, uh, uh, you know, uh, the clothes might be a uniform or something. Uh, but in reality, these are good jobs and they require the electrician union. You have to know math. I can't, you're going to have to help me with this Greek name. The Pythagorean, help me out with this Greek mathematical thing. Uh, Pythagorean. Uh, Pythagorean. Pythagorean. Yes, yes. Excellent. Pythagoras was a philosopher uh, best known for uh, his mathematical uh, um, philosophies and practices. They actually use that in, uh, the electricians use that in their wiring and some other plans that they do. So, you know, math does play a role in this. You don't have to be uh, – I got it again, I, I've seen I, Ivy League people, you know, transfer to get on the uh, – you know, get on the bottom stick, but they rise pretty fast. And, mm-hmm. and it's all about for your apprenticeship. The best one I did, however, was um, uh, I linked two occupations down on the Delaware br- Bridge. Uh, you go over and you look down. It used to be a, a huge DuPont uh, plant. And they were going to hire outside workers, uh, instrument techs, and electricians. What they do is quite similar. It's just in the process what they do. So they were going to hire other people rather than giving out overtime and whatever. I got the two locals to agree, be, agree to become one. And um, uh, I set up awesome. a new plant. And they brought – I'm so proud of this, Hercules, because they used to feature this in every – Atlantic City Forum uh, that had to do with uh, labor and, uh, you know, um, uh, vocational schools. And uh, it worked out. Now, I think that plant closed for DuPont, but I think it's still open. But those workers got their time in and apprenticeship classes came and, uh, you know, and went. And uh, maybe there's still apprenticeships there. Somehow it might still be owned by uh, DuPont. That's my proudest. I, uh, I, I, and, and the, uh, I told you about the uh, Amtrak thing. Uh, because of Governor Whitman, I couldn't get a college in New Jersey or a school in New Jersey to train workers because her point was that she left uh, the board of Amtrak. And I think that's a silly reason to stop people from getting an opportunity to work in new jobs in a high-speed rail, which it may not be that high sp- uh, speed anymore, but it was a success. And uh, you know, there are things that have to be done to ensure better safety on all our rail systems, uh, and I'm hoping that takes place. But the older workers were put on uh, the new Amtrak, which was a cellar, and the other workers worked on other trains. And as they got educated in training in uh, North Virginia and uh, Massachusetts, and of all places, uh, uh, a, a school in Queens, New York, which didn't give many opportunities for New Jersey workers. So I don't understand her thought process. I'm sure there's somebody out there that may think Governor Whitman did a good job and she criticizes every go- every other governor. But she was on that issue. She was dead wrong. And I had uh, Essex County College, uh, which would have been a good training vendor, and it would have created jobs. Uh, it would have given, uh, given money to the school. Hercules, I was uh, I gave tests for Amtrak. I was making. About 140, I was bringing into government $140,000 a year wow. testing Amtrak potential apprentices. 
you know, I had the scoring mechanisms. I would send the results to those schools, and uh, there were uh, it was all be, uh, you know it was based on American College Testing's worksheets. That was part of it too, because uh, uh, although we have the other testing company in New Jersey, they didn't like it, and uh, there were other testing companies out there that were small and ridiculous. But this was a good project. It was worked out by uh, craft workers and management. And that's like, you know, that's like sitting over a strike table and getting them to agree to everything. And it was a new process, and I just kept scoring papers for them and other uh, Ames Rubber, which was in Sussex County, which won the Baldwin's Award. And they set up an apprenticeship. The Baldwin's Award is the high-level Department of Commerce Award. The year they won it, uh, they were servicing uh, Xerox, a bigger company, and both won it. And, uh, you know, they drove me up the wall uh, trying to do these things. And I think in the long run they were right. Uh, but, you know, we'll n- never know. I think it is a, a viable venue to get training and earning. You know, um, as I said before, one thing to know about most apprenticeships, especially union ones, they'll greatly jump with experience. So they may t- start off with 25 hours or so, uh, but they'll, they'll with, after they've completed their 140 hours of, of, of mandatory training, they will be earning even more. You know, uh, so it, 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 there's a great argument. Small companies can do it. I'm just going to give you a, a path on some of the, um, you know, and these are low, these are low ball figures. Electricians, uh, it says here the median salary is fifty three thousand. That's not true. Even in the union, they make they're probably in the in New Jersey unions. They're probably making close to eighty thousand. After their training, they're going to jump up to eighty thousand. How many college graduates in four years of college will will jump to fifty two thousand and not have any? Uh, the un the un unanticipated thing is they won't have to pay any tuition. I'm not killing off college. But uh, in some of our, you know, technical colleges, this training goes on, too. I mean, unions and companies send their workers to high-level colleges and, uh, and other places to be trained. But the expected growth across the country for electricians is 14%. Uh, pile drivers, which I know they're a nuisance. <laughs> they make a lot of noise. And these are not uh, all the, you know, and there's those things you see piling posts uh, into the ground. Uh, they pay about uh, you know fifty five thousand. They expect seventeen thousand. Carpenters, I don't know. This salary is pretty low, and I and I know that uh, New Jersey Carpenters Union is merged in Carpenters, but uh, they're down to forty three thousand, and their expected job growth is six percent. Elevator installers, you know, you were in New York City. This is a big, a big occupation. Yeah. They start at $78,000. There's a 13% uh, growth uh, expected in in those things. And uh, uh, I did plumbers, pipe fitters, and steam fitters. Uh, They're uh, at 51,000, and they're about 10%. And then I've got the iron workers, uh, which um, I believe I did. um, Oh, God, you're going to have to help me now. My Okay. I did, if I can. The Senate president. The Senate president is a union official, and I believe he's iron workers in Camden and Atlantic County. I did his union. I helped set up the apprenticeship. 
I did the um, uh, uh, I, I, I did the guys the uh, guys that wave the flags there in their own union uh, on highway traffic. They sometimes fill in for some of the other union people. I did them, but uh, I can't think of the uh, Senate president. It's the Senate president now, but he's still the head of uh, uh, Ironworkers Union, and I did his union in Atlantic and uh, 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 I guess Camden County. Um, he causes a lot of problems with our current uh, governor. <laughs> and um, I want to get to some of the uh, one-stops. You know, you have a, a one-stop in Hackensack uh, up in northern, northwestern New Jersey. Is uh, is uh, Adrian back now, or she's she's still on vacation? She's still out. Um, I'm not sure. Okay. I didn't, I um, but uh, we have offices in our three counties up there. Uh, uh, we have an office in Newton. I had two offices with it when I was there: Newton and Franklin. And I had Phillipsburg. Uh, Phillipsburg still exists. Dover still exists. And Newton is uh, one, the other one-stop office. Uh, you have a Patterson one-stop office, and you have a Patterson Workforce Investment Board. That's the higher office. That's a bunch of agencies overseeing the one stops. And then included in that are all the technical high schools. I would say that uh, you can, it's the one occupation that you can learn, learn and earn at the same time, come out with no residual debt that you can go to. Some of your training can be at a, at a County college. Some of it can be at a, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, vocational high school or some other related uh, training, as long as you put in that 140 hours a year. And uh, then you learn on the job. You're going out, and no apprentices get laid off. The actual, wow. The actual guys that are fully trained, they get laid off. But apprentices will always work. So that's an advantage, Darren, for the four years. And it's a uh, – you know, you go in, uh, they're sometimes in hard times, but I expect uh, for some construction projects, if the tunnel goes through, for instance, uh, between New York and New Jersey, which should have went through during Lautenberg's, uh, Senator Lautenberg's tenure, there will be a lot of, uh, lot of um, work there. And here's a factor that doesn't come out. For every $1 billion put into infrastructure, there are 16,000 jobs created. Now, infrastructure also includes water. We had the screaming about the water in Newark, uh, but they do need a new infrastructure from our, from the highlands on down. I wish that uh, my friend uh, Greg would have, you know, been able to talk more. We're, uh, we're going to have him back on because I'm devoting uh, time and energy to the water situation uh, because uh, it, the dangerous algae spreading and uh, we need water to survive. And uh, a lot of That's things right. are going on with our water system. So sorry to take it off track, but that is something I intend on addressing frequently. So Greg is always welcome by himself uh, so that we can uh, he uh, get sources. He uh, has spoken to, uh, you know, the legislators and uh, their opponents on the topic, up in, at least in our area. And our, as I was saying that we – our water is the water that flows down to many of these reservoirs. Uh, Passaic County, uh, probably um, uh, our water flows into Newark, 
and some of the towns, uh, some of the towns like Belleville or that are that are using water, they're going di- to disconnect and they're going to go for their own source. I don't know how that's going to work out, but it is a necessity. And for us up in the highlands, we have to watch out for our water because right. uh, you know our lakes are a vital source of swimming. And uh, uh, you, one of the last times I was at a lake meeting it was our lake, and it's a you know a, a half, three quarter of a mile lake. And they were talking about everybody wants the best land, you know, lawn. But when you live on a lake like Lake Apakong or my lake like Lake Stockholm, you can't put all the garbage that you put on your grass to have the best lawn. Right. That gets into the water. Now, our water is more for recreation and fishing, but there's talk of algae into our water. And just on the other one side of us is Lake Apakong, with some of its water, too, believe it or not, from a distance flows down to Newark and other towns, and uh, just before my uh, entrance to my community is Greenwood Lake, which had, uh, which is a two-state lake. It goes from, uh, you know, a lot, lucky for the New Yorkers, the uh, New York Staters, the pollution was con- uh, confined to the um, New Jersey side, and there's a, a Native American tribe living in that area. I don't know if they use that water uh, uh there's always some uh, argument if they really are Native Americans, but they're, they've uh, married and, count, and, and married with other groups like Hessian troops, uh, but they are a Native American tribe. The Ramapos, they call themselves, and they've been featured in, our, uh, you know, in studies of uh, archaeology and anthropology. So I think they can make a proper claim to it. But, yeah, water is an essential need, and it's all over the country. I mean, this this. Uh, I tried to tell the one guest that this has been a problem for 40 years. I was I was yeah. 22 and I reported to the city about what was going on. You know, the city told me that I would have to okay somebody to work up in their reservoir, you know, to do pH and other tests. And I said, the guy lives in Cedar Grove. He don't even live in Newark. Uh, how are you going to hire him? And there was more scandal. And, and finally, they found we're gonna have, the we're gonna have to stop now because it just informed me I've uh, okay. around a minute uh, left before they cut me off. Uh, Bill, to be continued, uh, both the water uh, issue and also the apprenticeship. And uh, this sounds uh, phenomenal. I'm definitely going to research it some more and let's see if we can get more people to go in that direction because uh, that sounds like the most secure game in town and it provides it a is. future in times of uncertainty. So. Anyway, thank you so much, Bill. Same here, and I will give you a call tomorrow. No problem. You take it easy. Good night. You too. Good night, Bill. And thank you to Bill, and thank you to all our our audience for tuning in tonight. Uh, Until next time, this is uh, Bill Waitman of Hercules Invictus wishing you joyous journeys and awesome adventures. Thanks for listening to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. Join us seven nights a week for exciting programming covering a variety of expressions of faith. And remember, all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Thank <laughs> you.